and welcome to Halfwit History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. Not sup. <laughs> not sup, sup. <laughs> Sometimes not so long ago. There we go. <laughs> and in my case, it's actually not very long ago this time. Mine is longer than yours, probably, then. Probably. And here we'll see how we both don't know what time is. <laughs> One is yours. Uh, mine is in 1892. Mine's in 2000. So actually, ah. we were like spot on this time. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, update. The next few episodes are going to be a little different just so that we can catch up. Uh, we've had some issues adjusting to the this uh, quarantine pandemic life. and we're, Our new we're... lifestyle yeah. in which I'm perpetually ill. I've had a cold literally since we started this quarantine nonsense, so I think it made everything worse for me, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, we have two pets that she's allergic to, so being home with them all day long has done a number on Kylie. Sorry for the sniffles. Yeah, I am extremely sniffly and have been for a month, so this is fun. (laughs) I cannot wait until I do not spend literally 24 hours in the same room as my rabbit (laughs) i love her dearly but she has a lot of fur yes and she's shedding now so that's great and i've been deemed essential at my company so my (laughs) life hasn't changed that much it's just a little bit more stressful and i'm a lot more excited when he walks in the door (laughs) yeah she gets home she's like it's time to take bilbo for a walk and i'm like are you sure it's not time to take kylie for a walk it is time to take kylie for a walk kylie needs a walk Okay, so what we're going to do the next few episodes until we catch back up to the, you know, so we're actually a This Week in History show again, <laughs> um, is next week, you'll just be hearing a story from Kylie. The week after that will be just me. Um, actually, for the weeks of the events that we're talking about, we're going to switch off to just one of us. So the episodes will be a little bit shorter. Yep. Um, some people may like that. I don't know. Well, some of the episodes may be a little bit shorter. I may take this as a license to go deep. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. <laughs> so and it, basically, we'll just be working on separate episodes until we catch up to actually this week. And because of that, we'll also just post the episodes as they get edited rather yep. than at a weekly time frame. So that should help our process a lot until we get back to a normal lifestyle. Yes, I don't know what's happened because I have all this time at home now, but I'm working but there are at like a dog that constantly needs my attention. And then Jonathan comes home and I'm like, just get me out of this house. I cannot stand it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so it's definitely, I felt like I'd have so much extra time and I feel like I have even less time than I did before. <laughs> yep. I'm, I feel kind of in the same boat. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, I so guess you get since, to go first. Yeah. <gasps> since I'm going first, we'll use this as a time to shout out uh, our friend Ashley, who's been picking out topics for us yes and i figure as a uh thank you to that <laughs> we'll finally do one of the topics that she's ex- exclamation mark exclamation mark exclamation mark need to do this <laughs> begging just please yep. <laughs> kind kind of constant so we figured we'll entertain it this time <laughs> yes <laughs> so my topic is on uh, march 18th of 1892 the former governor governor general lord stanley pledges to donate a Silver Challenge Cup as an award for the best amateur hockey team in Canada. It was later named after him as the Stanley Cup. Ooh. 
we're going into sports ball slash sports, sports buck. <laughs> yeah, uh, yep, yep. No balls involved in this one. Just sports buck. <laughs> just sports buck. So Frederick Arthur Stanley was born on January 15th of 1841 in London, England. Frederick was the youngest son of the 14th Earl of Derby, Edward Smith Stanley, who served as the British Prime Minister in 1852, 1858, 1859, 1866, 1867, and 1869. Well, then. <laughs> yep. He, I think, currently holds the most individual time serving as prime minister with people in between him. I mean, I feel like that would be hard to beat. Yep. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it was it was three individual times over X amount of years or something like that. Yeah. Wow. Actually, four. Because it's 52, 58. So it's 52, 58 and 59, 66 and 67, and then 69. Jeez. <laughs> yep. <laughs> busy boy yes so by being born to an earl frederick was immediately endowed with a lordship so he was lord stanley right from the get-go if only we all could have that yeah (laughs) so lord stanley originally chose to serve in the grenadier guards but quickly decided that that wasn't the life for him and that he would prefer to be in politics so going from a military school to politics In politics, he served as a member of parliament for Preston, North Lancashire, and Blackpool, and was appointed the Lord of Admiralty and later the Secretary of State of War, the Secretary of State for the Colonies, and President of the Board of Trade. Fun. Yeah, dude got a lot of, got right into politics (laughs) and did a lot. Dove right on in headfirst. Or at least had a lot of titles. I don't know how much he actually did in those roles. That's a fair question. (laughs) So eventually he was selected by Queen Victoria to serve as the Governor General of Canada on May 1st of 1888. Once given this title, he and most of his family would travel across the Atlantic Ocean to live in Canada. He brought with him his wife Constance, his sons Edward, Victor, and William, and his daughter Isabel. Stanley had four other sons who stayed in England named Arthur, Ferdinand, George, and Algernon. Wait, wait, whoa. (laughs) Yep. What a name. (laughs) That's a, we have the like, first time I've ever heard that name. We have like totally normal, like William, and we have totally normal names like William, and what was another one? Like Arthur. Arthur, George, and then Algernon. Algernon. All right. And there's eight <laughs> of them, so that's far too many kids. Right. Like that. What was he going through in his life, like a midlife crisis, that at that point in having a kid, he was like, oh, this one's going to have a weird name. Technically, he also had two other children, uh, but they died in, like, very young infancy. Ah, gotcha. Yep. So he had 10. Right, but, yeah. So my burning question is, what happened to you to give that child a weird name? (laughs) Poor Algernon. I think Algernon was the youngest as well. (laughs) Oh, poor buddy. (laughs) Yeah. So Stanley and his family spent a significant amount of time traveling Canada. They loved landscapes, traveling in the new Canadian Pacific Railway, talking with people, both Canadian and First Nations or indigenous people. And Lord Stanley loved fishing and would participate in the sport as frequently as he could. But on February 4th of 1889, Stanley would go to the Montreal Winter Carnival, and this would be the first time that they watched a game with, of hockey with their son Edward and daughter Isabel. After returning to the governor's office with their father in Rideau Hall, the two children explained with fervor and excitement the details of the game that they just witnessed. 
Edward would start organizing games to be played between other government employees, and Isabel started playing in amateur games herself, eventually getting an ice rink built at Renault Hall. Isabel's passion for the game is a significant part of what drove the family to become passionate themselves. Isabel was also one of the first female hockey players ever documented in 1899. Wow. And is largely responsible for it also becoming a popular women's sport. Good for you, Isabel. Yeah. During the victory celebrations of one hockey game on March 18th of 1892, Stanley drafted a letter explaining the first idea of a Challenger's Cup to be awarded. The letter stated, I have for some time been thinking that it would be a good thing if there were a Challenge Cup, which should be held from year to year by the champion hockey team in the Dominion of Canada. There does not appear to be any such outward sign of a championship at present, and considering the general interest which matches now elicit, the importance of having the game played fairly and under rules generally recognized, I am willing to give a cup which shall be held from year to year by the winning team. I am not quite certain that the present regulations governing the arrangement of matches give entire satisfaction, and it would be worth considering whether they could not be arranged so that each team could play once at home and once in a place where their opponents hail from. Stanley went out and bought a silver punch bowl from G.R. Collis and Company, now known as Boodle and Dunthorne Jewelers. I'm not sure that's an upgrade on the name. <laughs> Boodle and Dunthorne. Uh, he bought it for about $1,385 in today's money. Engraved on one side was Dominion Hockey Cup Challenge, and on the other was engraved from Stanley of Preston. The name Stanley Cup was given to it as early as May 1st of 1893, when the Ottawa Journal used the name as its title. Sadly, he never got to see a single Stanley Cup championship. On July 15th of 1893, he was forced to return to England for his older brother, the 15th Earl of Derby, had passed away that April, and Stanley succeeded him as the 16th Earl of Derby. So, let's get into some fun facts about the Stanley Cup itself, or else my section would be very short. (laughs) So, first up, there are actually three Stanley Cups. The first cup is known as the Dominion Hockey Challenge Cup and was first awarded in 1892 and was given to the champions until 1963. This version was also known as the Stovepipe Cup because as teams won and their names were engraved on the trophy, eventually there was no more room for engraving. (laughs) This led teams to buy new bands to place underneath the cup to add more room for engraving. It eventually got so tall that it looked like an exhaust of a stove. (laughs) This started the tradition of removing a band each time a new band was added, and the old band would get sent to the Hockey Hall of Fame for storage. Okay. I mean, I get that. Yeah. In 1963, people started to worry about the condition of the original bowl that was donated by Lord Stanley. It seemed to be getting really brittle. A new cup was commissioned and actually kept a secret for three years before it was revealed that the cups had been swapped out. Oh, so they made it look like the other one then. Yeah, it was it was as identical as it could be. I think it had a stamp or like another engraving on the bottom of the cup that can distinguish the original t- to this one. Nice. So this second cup became known as the Presentation Cup and is still in use today. The third cup is the Permanent Cup and was created in Montreal in 1993 to use as a stand-in when the Presentation Cup was with a team and not at the Hockey Hall of Fame. 
Another tidbit is that the cup was not always hoisted overhead by the captain of the winning team. In fact, the cup wasn't even presented on ice until 1932 when the Toronto Maple Leafs would win, and it wouldn't become common practice until all the way in 1950 when the captain of the Detroit Red Wings received the cup and did a lap on the ice to show the cup to all the fans. Hmm. Since then, the tradition of the captain receiving and hoisting the cup has rarely been broken. One notable break from tradition was in 2001 when Captain Joe Sakic of the Colorado Avalanche handed the trophy to Ray Bork to do the initial lap with the cup. This was notable because Bork had never won the cup before, but was a highly skilled player, and he was retiring from hockey that year after 22 years of play. Aw, that's really nice. Yeah. So remember how I mentioned that they hoist the cup overhead for the final championship game? Uh Uh-huh. The cup weighs 34.5 pounds (laughs) and has a fixed height of 35.25 inches tall or almost three feet or a meter. So almost me. Yeah, it is. It's a Bilbo length. It's a Bilbo length sized cup. Yeah. That weighs just about as much as Bilbo. Yeah. So imagine after like having a long grueling championship series back to back to back and having to hoist Bilbo over your head and do yet another lap around the rink. Uh, uh, can they use both hands? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess that would help. I don't know. But still, that's. I never realized how heavy that thing was. That's a hefty cup, guys. Yeah. <laughs> so, as most prestigious awards go, it is not free from some drama. The most notable example of this is uh, Peter Pocklington who is the owner of the Edmonton Oilers, who were the champions in 1988, had his name removed by a series of X's by the official engraver of the cup. This was done because Peter decided to trade away what would become one of the greatest players of all time, Wayne Gretzky, to the Los Angeles Kings less than a year after winning the cup. (laughs) And Peter, not only that, like people feel like it was a disgrace because Peter Pocklington did this entirely for money, he got $15 million in cash for trading Gretzky, and he did this just because his other business investments were not doing as well as he planned. Rude. So he took all of that money and used it on Rude. other things. So his, his name has official X's across it so that it can't Good. be read anymore. <laughs> shame, shame, shame. Yes, lots of shame. So lastly, probably the most notable or most odd fun fact is that two babies have been baptized inside Stanley Cup's bowl. Why? <laughs> so when you win the Stanley Cup, at some point they made a tradition of each player gets to have the cup for one day. So in two different instances, uh, the first one was in 1996, a defenseman of the Colorado Avalanche, Sylvain Lefebvre. I, oh my God, wow. E L E F E B V R E. Yeah, I don't Lever. even want to try. Sure, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry, Sylvain. Uh, he had his daughter baptized in the bowl. And the second time was in 2008. The Detroit Red Wings left wing, Thomas Holstrom, brought it back to Sweden to baptize his cousin. And he only had it for the day. Yep. But he took it back to Sweden. Yep. Got his cousin baptized. And then took it all back. Or maybe there was another player in Sweden on the Red Wings at that time and just Oh, maybe. It off there. Yeah. That I mean, that's industrious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a good good use of your time with it, I guess. Yeah. Lots of time to stare admiringly at it on the plane. 
<laughs> Another thing that I saw was that the Stanley Cup actually has a chauffeur or like a uh, someone who follows it around wherever it goes. Um, <laughs> I forget what his name is, but he has a Twitter account for the Stanley Cup. He's one of the like one of the people who hold the title to the Stanley Cup. There's a few different people who the Stanley Cup technically belongs to, but he's okay. the one who gets to babysit the Stanley Cup. <laughs> it's brought everywhere. <laughs> Which also leads to some funny things because the Stanley Cup has gone swimming not once, not twice, but three different times in its history. One of which was someone just wondering, I wonder if this thing floats and threw it into their pool. No, it's a 35 pound <laughs> cup. No, it doesn't float. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the Stanley Cup's been places. The Stanley Cup also was in Afghanistan when we were at war. Oh, wow. Uh, it was a morale booster for the Canadian American troops. That seems like it would be very effective, actually. Yeah. So uh, the the Stanley Cup has been places. The Stanley and, Cup and is much things. more well-traveled than I am. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, that's all I got. Uh, I hope you are happy, Ashley. I also like hockey, so this is a pretty easy one for me to, to, <laughs> to do There you for. go. There we go. Our tribute to sports ball and Ashley all in one go. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever wondered how to make a shrunken head? or why there was a cat floating up in space in 1963, or just what it takes for a monkey to become an astronaut. Did you know that a snarky swearing parrot ruined Andrew Jackson's funeral? And that a crew of 28 explorers drifted lost on the ice floes of Antarctica for two years during World War I? And why does fruitcake exist? If you want to excavate through the deepest primordial interiors of the human experience, reach back into time and find the stories that connect all of us to a place where real history is woven with storytelling that brings the past back to life, then come visit the History Cache podcast for some exhaustively researched historical narrative that just might inspire you to make your own history. That's Cache spelled C-A-C-H-E. It's history better than fiction, a podcast crafted for the most curious of minds, available wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. Well, I, f- I feel a little bad that I'm going last on this one. <clears throat> Uh-oh. It's, it's a bit of a downer, guys. And I apologize. I just, I couldn't pass it up. It's too fascinating to me. All right. So on March 17th, 2000, 530 members of the Ugandan cult, cult movement, uh, movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God, um, die in a fire. Uh-oh. Yep, it's considered to be a mass murder or mass suicide, kind of depending on who you ask, orchestrated by the leaders of the cult. Then later, another 248 members are all found dead. Oh, no. So this is the story of how all of that came to pass. So the earliest origins of the movement have been traced back to a woman named Credonia Merwendes, Father Paolo Kashaku, and these are all Ugandan names, so I apologize in advance if I butcher them horrifically. When, not if. When, when, yes. We're very good at butchering names, regardless of uh, ethnicity. Yeah, well, I mean, I've heard several of them before, so like, I, I hope in theory I remember how to pronounce them, but I cannot guarantee. So in 1960, her father Paolo claimed to have had a vision of his deceased daughter Evangelista, who told him that he would have visions of heaven, which allegedly occurred in 1988 when he saw Jesus Christ, the Virgin Mary, and St. Joseph. All at the same time? All in a vision, presumably all together, yes. Were they having a party? 
Probably not. I mean, I would like to imagine it was a fun vision, but I, considering where this is going, probably not. Hmm. You're right. <laughs> I'll let you keep going. We need to make it light somehow. <laughs> um, so Paolo con- uh, instructed Credonia to spread the message across Uganda on the orders of the Virgin Mary. This message of his vision, I suppose. Yeah. So in 1989, Credonia met Joseph Kibwatere, who claimed to have had a vision of the Virgin Mary in 1984, so several years before her father. Credonia likewise claimed to have also had visions of the Virgin Mary, and they took advantage of the climate of fear in Uganda at the time and formed the Movement for the Restoration of the Ten Commandments of God with the mission to spread the Virgin's message about the apocalypse. Mm. Fun. Because what is a cult without the coming apocalypse? So the group grew rapidly and attracted several defrocked Catholic priests and nuns who worked as theologians, rationalizing messages from the leadership, including the excommunicated priests, Paul Ikazire and Dominic Kataribabo. That's the one I have the hardest time with, to be honest. Um, So defrocked means like you used to be a priest and then the church said, Nope, get out. Kind of defrocked deal. is a great word. It really is. It's a wonderful word. Defrocked. <clears throat> so, with the addition of Dominic Kataribabo, the sect gained influence. Dominic was a respected and popular priest who had a PhD from a university in the United States. Um, it was Loyola Marymount University. For anyone who was curious, <laughs> I did some digging. By the late 1990s, the church had grown into a thriving community set in pineapple and banana plantations where members lived communally on land bought by pooling their assets, which they were required to sell when they joined the movement. Because that's not sketchy. Not a cult at all. Nope. Absolutely a cult. (laughs) You're in a cult. (laughs) Um, So they built houses for recruitment, indoctrination and worship, and a primary school. So they still educated their children probably not in a way that any state or country would recognize as... Education. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Credonia claimed to have received messages from the Virgin Mary through a hidden telephone system that communicated throughout through everyday objects. Mary had 5G in 2000? Apparently. Wow. I know. It's better than we have now. (laughs) (laughs) So... So one of these messages Credonia supposedly received revealed that the apocalypse would happen in the year 2000. Remember the Y2K panic? Yeah. Yeah. Taking advantage of everyone else already being on edge. Great. In 1992, the group was ordered out of the Russian mayor village um, by the village elders, which is where um, Joseph Kibwatere's um, home was. So they had kind of all gathered in his area and like kind of started to expand from there. And then basically the people in the town were like, we don't like where this is going. You need to leave and like kick them out. Yeah. So they moved to the Kenungu district where Credonia's father offered an extensive property for their use. They settled on a magnificent plot of fertile hillside land and the cult set about spreading its message chiefly through a 163-page manifesto titled A Timely Message from Heaven, The End of the Present Times. Lots of time. Yep. 
so cheery. <laughs> Much of the book is devoted to the revelations that Mr. Kimbotere and other cult leaders said they had received. The volume contains dark prophecies of famine and war, rivers of blood, uh, rivers turning to blood and of food turning to poison. It enumerates the problems that would be visited on particular countries. Um, an example is Mozambique will be destroyed by its own machinery. And Japan will have rain falling for as long as my father wants. Presumably my father is God, I think. Who says he just doesn't want a light sprinkle? Well, I mean... Maybe that one came true. Rain falling could be interpreted as a light sprinkle or a drizzle. It's true. So, Maybe we're going through a drought. That one could have come true. M maybe. Who knows? So, with Mr. Kimbotere as the chief... Uh, Preacher, the cult took hold. However, in 1994, Paul Ikazire left the sect, taking with him approximately 70 of their members. But this apparently didn't hurt their numbers too much, because according to the filing with the government, the movement's membership was listed at nearly 5,000 people in 1997. It's pretty big. Yeah, it's pretty substantial. And again, at this time in Uganda, like there were there were a lot of like religious uprisings and a lot of like small cults and stuff like this popping up um and it was there was just this like divergence between like the government and religion and it just kind of expanded very rapidly and it was a lot there was a lot of turmoil like both politically and socially so like people latched on to you know this this group that made them feel safe and comfortable and belong and it just kind of got at it like honestly it seems like it just got out of hand which is really unfortunate because that seems to be how a lot of cults spring up. Yeah. All right. So, in 1998, the Ugandan press reported that the movement had been shut down for unsanitary conditions, use of child labor, and possibly kidnapping children. Uh-oh. But for some reason, it was allowed to reopen. Cool. Unknown. Or it shut down and then kind of, like, sprung up on it again somehow. And, like, flew under the radar. So, with the new year looming, activity by the movement members became frenzied. Their leaders urged them to confess their sins in preparation for the end. In 1999, the state-owned New Vision newspaper ran an interview with a teenage member. He said, quote, The world ends next year. There is no time to waste. Some of our leaders talk directly to God. Any minute from now, when the end comes, every believer who will be... And as yet, undisclosed spot will be saved. So they thought that there was this one specific place where you could go. And if you were a believer, you would be spared. Hmm. And that becomes sort of relevant later. <laughs> I feel like with your introduction of the topic, I can see where that place may be. Yes. Well, I definitely felt like I needed to be like upfront about what this topic was going to be. I didn't want to like lead up to it and have people be like oh like 900 people died yeah. okay yeah so i was like mm, this is gonna need to be honest from the get-go because you know sometimes i try to like like have fun going into it and i was like mm, not today <laughs> all right so clothes and cattle were sold cheaply past members were re-recruited and all work in the field ceased however january 1st 2000 passed without the advent of the apocalypse and of course, the movement began to unravel. Weird how that happened. Yeah. Understandably, members had a lot of questions, and predictably, the leaders didn't have any answers. 
Ugandan police believe that some members who had been required to sell their possessions and turn over the money to the movement may have rebelled and demanded a return of their money. What happened next is believed to have been orchestrated by the leaders of the sect in response to this crisis within their ranks. So another date was immediately predicted for the end of the world. March 17th, 2000 was the new apocalypse. A doomsday they said would come, quote, with ceremony and finality. Um, And that was according to a New York Times article. The movement held a huge party at Kanugu, where they roasted three bulls and drank 70 crates of soft drinks. That's a lot of soda, guys. Oh, yeah. A lot of soda. Minutes after the members were, um, so they had like church services and they had like a big church in this area. Um, This is all like on their land. So they had church services and stuff going on throughout the day. And then after the services, they had a party. So everyone went into like the air, presumably like they had an area where they held like these celebrations and stuff. And so minutes after members had arrived for the party, nearby villagers heard an explosion. And the building was gutted in an intense fire. At 12.45 p.m., the police station at Rukugiri, the headquarters for the area, received a radio call from the deputy commander, Stephen Musake, who said the call was from an officer in Kambuga, uh, which is a couple villages from Kanugu and the nearest one that had a police post. There had been a fire at the headquarters of the Kibotere group, the officer reported, and that there were people dead. If only they knew then exactly how strong that statement was. Yeah. So only as villagers and police officers descended on the smoldering building did the scale become apparent. The remains of hundreds of people, mostly their bones, and in some cases only ashes, lay massed at one end of the chapel. Virtually no one could be positively identified, and by Monday night, they had all been buried together in a grave alongside their wrecked house of worship. The explosion and the resulting fire had killed all 530 people in attendance, including dozens of children. Now, some could imagine that this may have been an accident. Maybe there was some sort of gas leak. You know, that kind of thing happens on occasion. Um, it just happened in Maine, where a, like there was a company that just went up in flames. Yeah, the paper mill, right? Well, the, pa- the paper mill, they still don't know what exactly happened, but this was like several weeks ago. It was like an insurance agency or something like that. Oh, really? Yeah, the like maintenance person was like something smells wrong. Everybody get out, and um, all of the employees were able to get out. I think there were probably like twenty some odd people who worked there. Everyone got out except for the maintenance person who originally alerted them. He was making sure everyone got out, and he was severely injured. And I think he later died. And then one of the firefighters who res- who responded also passed away from it. Um, but like it was one of those things where like something is wrong like i know this smell this is bad everybody get out kind of thing in this case there was no one going this is wrong something something's wrong everyone get out so as conceivable as that could have been as it turns out the windows and the doors of the building had been boarded up to prevent people from leaving Mm. so it was clearly thoroughly planned out which is the downer um, so several days before, one of the movement leaders, Dominic Kataribabo, had see- had been seen buying 50 liters of sulfuric acid, which may have been what started the fire um, or what had been used to ignite the fire. There were also 
There was also another party that had been planned for the next day. And officials believed that the sect leaders had announced that in order to mislead authorities as to the plans. Mm. As like a decoy kind of thing. Yeah. The five principal cult leaders, Joseph Kibotere, <clears throat> Joseph Casaparari, John Kamagara, Dominic Kataribabo, and Credonia Merwende, were assumed to have all died in the fire. However, in a horrific turn of events, while investigating the explosion, police investigated movement properties like elsewhere and discovered hundreds of bodies on sites across southern Uganda. Six bodies were discovered sealed in the latrine of the Kanungu compound, as well as 153 bodies at a compound in Buhunaj, 155 bodies at Dominic Katarababo's estate in Rugazi, where they had been poisoned and stabbed, and then another 81 bodies lay at leader Joseph Nymerinda's farm. So police stated that they had been murdered about three weeks before the church inferno. Oh, God. So, yeah. So it's like the group went across their properties and just murdered people, killed all of the members there. Presumably not like the group as a whole. My assumption would be it was like a very close group to the leaders who probably did this. Um, Just because like I can only imagine that like 530 people there are probably some people who'd be like Wait, why are you killing people like why are you killing our members kind of thing you so, would hope that someone I would, would hope raise so. that red flag i would hope so but then i don't think anyone did well and then you have groups like having skate where like all 39 members or something like that committed suicide voluntarily all on their own like one at a time so yeah. like you never know um <clears throat> So other than the individuals who had died in the fire, medical examiners determined that the majority of the dead sect members had been poisoned. After searching all the sites, the police concluded that earlier estimates of nearly a thousand dead had been exaggerated and that the final death toll had settled at 924 because that's so much less than a thousand. So much. Yeah. Makes a difference. Yep. After interviews and an investigation were conducted, the police ruled out a cult suicide and instead considered it to be a mass murder conducted by the movement leadership. Yep. Sounds like it. Yes, it does. So they believe that the failure of the doomsday prophecy led to a revolt in the ranks of the sect and the leaders set a new date with a plan to eliminate their followers. The discoveries of the bodies at other sites, the fact that the church had been boarded up, and the presence of incendiaries and the possible disappearance of sect leaders all point to this theory. Additionally, witnesses said that the movement leadership had never spoken of mass suicide when preparing members for the end of the world. Because presumably, if the world ends, you wouldn't have to commit suicide. Right. It would just be the end. Yeah, you would just go. <clears throat> right. So a survivor recalled meeting a devout member of the cult with nails and a hammer who was like walking away after he had left the cult. And it's believed that he may have been the one to shut the door and shut the windows and doors with nails to prevent people from escaping absolutely there was no follow-up on this i have absolutely no idea if like that story was substantiated or if like looked into um so unfortunately i don't actually know about that it Hmm. was just someone reported that so the ugandan government responded with condemnation president yoweri museveni called the event a quote mass murder by these priests for monetary gain and the vice president dr specioso wandira 
Kazibwe said, quote, these were callously well-orchestrated mass murders perpetrated by a network of diabolic, malevolent criminals masquerading as religious people. So in an unsurprising turn of events, despite the original assumption that all five leaders had died in the fire, the police now believe that Joseph Kibotere and Credonia Merwende were still alive and had issued an international warrant for their arrest. And as far as I can tell, Father Dominic Caterababo was the only leader whose body was positively identified after the fire. So theoretically, there are four of them who could be out there somewhere. That's crazy. Yeah. But it does seem to me, like, especially from, like, all of the other stuff that I read that, like, I didn't include in here, it definitely seems like Credonia and Joseph Kibotere were, like, the head masterminds. Like, he was the, like, forefront of it. And then Credonia was, like, the, like, mastermind behind everything. Yep. Um. So, like, the other leaders, I think, were probably not informed of this pl- this is just me theorizing at this point. Yeah, yeah It yeah. feels to me very much like they were probably the ones who were in charge and the rest probably, they were probably like, they may have known or like suspected, but it very much seems to me like one of those things where like, you know, the more people who know about something, the, the more it gets out. Yeah. So like, if it was just them who knew about it, they could pull it off. But I feel like it would have been a lot harder if like all of the leaders had really known. Right. So. It's hard to tell. It's also better to get some... Wow, George. (laughs) Yeah. It's also... I I would imagine if you're trying to pull off something like this and you have like a bunch of cult people who are already falling in line with everything that you're doing, you would want some people at the top who are also not aware of what's going on. Right. Because it makes it very easy to play into... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um... So they issued an international warrant for their arrest. Um, In 2014, it was announced by the Uganda National Police that there were reports that Kibotere was hiding in Malawi under an assumed identity. I wasn't able to find any follow-up information on that either, so it could just be rumor. Um, An article from the New York Times about a week after these events interviewed Kibotere's son who said, quote, I feel pity for those people who died. Um, in fact, I hate my father. If he has escaped and I met him, I wouldn't hesitate killing him. So clearly, not a happy camper. So he recounted how his father had been a pious Catholic devout, uh, devoted to good works until he was approached by Credonia Merwende and two other members of her already established Chris- Christian cult devoted to the Virgin Mary. He... Quote, he grew up in a lovely home, a lovely family, until he brought those people home, said their son, a contractor and father of four children himself. When this three strange women first appeared, Mrs. Kibotere at first joined in on their activities. But as more and more followers came to live on the family farm, tensions grew between the 200 or so followers in the family. So they had 200 people living on their farm. Bef- this is bef- this is like right around the this is like where they were living before they got kicked out of that village. Right. And then ended up going to where they ended up. So there were 200 people who had like inundated into this very small village and were like living on this person's farm. So like I can imagine why the whole town was like, "Ah, we don't want (laughs) you here. Yeah, exactly. Quote, when the people staying here 
came, they started mistreating us, the family members, the children and the mother, saying the Virgin Mary had told them to do things to keep us without food and to punish us, the son recalled. So he fought back first on his own and then later with the support of his mother and siblings against the people who he said had made him feel like a prisoner in his own home. And the family ultimately won because in 1992, the Colton's leaders packed up and left for Kanungu, where eight years later, they would all meet their unfortunate fate. Yep. Interestingly, Kibwateri's family revealed that the day before the fire, they received a package from Kanunga where that contained books and documents from the cult, its certificate of registration, a copy of the Ten Commandments of the cult, and other items. All were sent, the family believes, by Joseph Kibwateri. And the son said that nobody else could have sent them, and he wanted them to carry on the message, which... I do not think he has any intention of doing. No, no. So, good choice. Um, And that is the story of the mass murder of the members of the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God. that was a wild ride. It's a wild... It is a wild ride. It's... That is one story that, like, I feel like every time I hear it... Because, like, I've heard it before on numerous podcasts and stuff. Every time I hear it, I feel like I learn something new. Yeah. And, like, looking into it myself, I'm like, oh, well, like, I didn't know this. Or, like, I didn't know that. And it's just... I don't I don't know what it is about cults, but like it's fascinating how people are how people are so good at getting other people to follow them. Yeah, and I never get how religions, I guess, how how people who are religious can become so blinded by other ideals that they would believe that the Virgin Mary told everyone to starve. Yeah, like, see, that's, that's, those are things like that that, like, I don't get. Like, I grew up, so I grew up Baptist. I am religious. Like, and I, everything I learned was, like, you, f- like, feed the hungry. You're supposed to help people, not starve and kill them. So, like, it's just, it's fascinating. Like, how do you go from, like, devout religion to we're going to kill all of our followers? Like, what happened? And I mean, how do you go from a religious person believing in religious things to just all of a sudden, like, oh, this one person actually got to speak with the Virgin Mary and she wants us all to starve and be malnourished? Like, yeah. The, the frick are you talking about? Yeah, it's... Like, I can get the whole, like, end of the world party things because, like, Revelations is in the Bible or whatever. Right, and, like, yeah. Like, a, a lot of different religious texts have some form of, this is how everything will end. But like, right. I don't get the, well, this random person from the Bible told me to do something that's clearly outside of what they normally Right, like, like kill and murder and starve and like, you know, mistreat. Like, yeah, all of those things. Like, I'm like, how do you, how do you get people to do that? Like, it's just that. And that's one of the things that like have always fascinated me about cults. So when I saw this, I was like, I have to do that. <laughs> Even though it's a downer, I'm like, I have to, because it's just, it's one of those things I'm like, I don't understand and i want to understand what happened and how this happened i mean so. for the most part history is a downer so we kind of got into that's true that when we started this. <laughs> that is very true there is a lot of history that is just downhill <laughs> okay are we ready for call to action i am ready okay so thanks for listening you guys can find us on facebook and twitter at halfwit history you can shoot us an email at halfwitpod at gmail.com yeah if you guys have any suggestions recommendations topic ideas we would love to hear from you we'd always we'd love to hear from you 
for anything just to say hi, but any suggestions about what you want to hear about would be great. Yeah, and uh, if you're listening to this in the month of April during this great pandemic that we're experiencing... (laughs) We have a page on Podchaser, which is trying to market itself as the IMDb of podcasts. And currently, they're donating to Meals on Wheels for every rating and review that is given on their platform. Yeah, so we would super appreciate um, any ratings or reviews, but specifically through there so that you know we can try and help how we can. Yeah, and they're also doubling any donation or any rate and review donations if the podcast themselves responds to the ratings and reviews which I will definitely be doing. We will be very responsive. (laughs) Yes. So you can also find us on Ko-Fi. So it's ko-fi.com forward slash halfwit history. It's essentially just a tip jar. So if you like what we do and want to throw throw us a few bucks, uh, I think it's right now it's $3 is the minimum that you can send us. Which is a coffee. (laughs) Yeah. Ko-Fi coffee. However you're supposed to say it. It's probably supposed to be coffee. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I like Ko-Fi. It sounds like more fun. Yeah. And if we get enough donations on there where there's like a gold program through Ko-Fi as well. So we'll open up for like subscriptions and we can yeah. change the our minimum donation lower is what we'll probably end up doing. <laughs> yeah. Change it to like a dollar. So. Yeah. Cool. Um, thank you to the Fishermen for the use of our theme song, Another Day. You can find a link to them in our show notes. Go check him out. He has a lot of cool stuff out there. Yeah, and this week our promo was for the History Cash. Uh, Kristen is awesome. That we are. If you hear any of these promos and we don't directly call them out, we also have links to their shows in our show notes yes. as well. Yep. Are we ready for fun facts? I'm so ready for a fun fact. What you got? Oh God, I have too many. Oh, okay. Here we go. <laughs> um. So. This is a little bit of a judgment call on me, Uh (laughs) or from me, I guess. Um, So March 16th, 1995, Mississippi formally ratifies the 13th Amendment, becoming the last state to approve the abolition of slavery. The 13th Amendment was officially ratified in 1869, so you are over a century late, Mississippi. Oh, Good job. Okay, I will do... On March 18th of 1990, the largest art theft in U.S. history, 12 paintings, collectively worth about $500 million, are stolen from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Yes. We'll probably end up doing that one as an actual topic yes, at some point. I almost did. The yeah. cult went out. But uh, we went to school together, conjunctively, sandwiching the Isabella Student Gardner Museum. Yeah, I, I went to Wentworth <laughs> and Kylie went to Simmons and Isabella Stewart Gardner is the only thing that separates us. Literally two just smack dab in the middle. One side is Simmons, one side is Wentworth. So. <laughs> okay. Well, as always, I've been your halfwit. And I'm your historian. And we hope you listen next week. Bye. Bye.